This podcast is proudly sponsored by Simmental Australia. The versatility and strength in both maternal and terminal trays should make Simmental's your first choice crossbreeding partner. So isn't it time you took your Simmental advantage? Welcome back to the Australian Simmental podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and it's always a pleasure sitting down with just incredible people. And my next guest is someone who just made me feel like I was sitting on the veranda right alongside him. This week, we're chatting to John Burnett about his family, of providing opportunities for each of his family members, having belief in their business strategy and process and sticking it through. And it's a chat which I reckon just could have kept on going for hours and hours. So let's jump on in. I reckon the faster and looser we make these things, the, the better they are, John. The better they work, yeah. 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 <laughs> it looks like it's a cracker of a day where you are. Where are you? Claremont. Yeah, Claremont, just north of Claremont, 20k north, yeah. Um, showers went through a couple of days ago, only half a million it, and then, uh, yeah, find up and beautiful day, good day for fencing or something like something like that. <laughs> good, oh, that's the good, guy. cool day. And how's the spring looking for you guys? Yeah, I'd say we're on as good a, good a position as we've been for a long time. Crops are all just turning now, ready to harvest, and the grass country's all started to kick away. One more shower and we're set up till, um, till December. It'll be fine. And because are you guys there, do you get like a, a fair chunk of uh, summer rainfall? Yeah, mostly summer. Uh, we're about 60, 70, 30 summer winter rain. Wheat is fairly reliable, but you can't guarantee it. And oats is the same that we use. Use oats in the fattening program and uh, it's it's not 100% reliable, but it's, it's worthwhile. There you go. And what's the name of your property there, John? Oh, uh, Bendemere ben is the base property. That's our home property. I'm on a little hobby farm now. I've retired and the boys have taken over. But our eldest son, Doug, is at Bendemere and he's he's uh, driving the genetic program for the for the business. Steve, our second son, is at Mont Eagle and he's got a group of properties on the western side of Claremont. Then we have Frankfield Pastoral Company, which is our core of our business probably. It, uh, it's run with a manager and a separate team of staff on that one. So we're basically across central Queensland. We've got a block near Springshore and then mostly north of Claremont. And how's the retired life treating you? Yeah, great, great. I haven't slowed down yet, but, it, but it's, it's, uh, it was just to get out of the road and let the next generation take control and drive things. And that's, that's where we're moving to. It's not a one day, one day you're in and one day you're out. You need to phase it over time, Ollie. And uh, that's the process we're in at the moment. We've been going for probably five years now. And I'd say another five years before we exit the business completely. The family takes over and runs it and carries on from there. And well, I'm keen to jump back to where it started for you. Was your old man farming a similar country? Like, have you always been around that area? Yeah, Bendemere has always been our family's home place. My grandfather came up from Bow Desert. Granddad was on a dairy farm and grandma was on a on another dairy farm. They were the oldest of 10 and 11 kids and they decided there wasn't enough room on the dairy farm for all of us. So granddad caught a train from Brisbane to Claremont, borrowed a horse, rode out to the Bellyendo River, down the river and back up Mistake Creek, which are two of the main watercourses, found a property that he thought he liked rode back to Claremont, caught the train back to Brisbane, packed up the mum and the four kids in an old overlander utility. Uh, all their possessions were on board, rode to, uh, drove back to Claremont, 
and um, started the family business in 1923. So it's just on 100 years since the family first came to, to the Claremont area. And that story just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it, John? Well, it's just, just <laughs> what I've been told. I assume it's true. <laughs> <laughs> what a heck of a story. And uh, the, the other, other part of that story, my grandmother's family thought that they'd, they'd never see Lottie Charlotte, she was called, and they thought they'd never see Lottie again. And uh, one of the great quotes was, wherever Albert goes, I go with him. And um, that was her approach, that she, she trusted Albert had found the right place, and, uh, and away they went, and the rest was history. So, yeah. Well, and 100 years later, it sounds like Albert made a pretty good call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he wasn't. He wasn't silly. He did, he did all right. They uh, they bought one property, had it for three years. Decided it was too tough. Sold and moved to Mount Douglas, uh, which is on the junction of the Billyanda and the Sutter Rivers. And of course, there was natural water and semi-open country. And decided it was a better bet. And our family, my cousin, is still there now. So it's uh, that was 1926. So it's not quite a hundred years since they moved to Mount Douglas. But the but they have been in that. Been in the the family's been in the area for just on a hundred years. Mate, that's incredible. And what about for you? Were, were you always hell bent on on being a farmer? Was it always of interest for you? I'm one of five kids. There was five of us in the family. Oldest brother was the one who was most likely the destined to come to the back onto the family property. I probably would have gone to university and done vet science or something. He was killed in a horse accident when I was in year eleven. And so the, I had to rethink my future and how things would change and uh, decided to come home for 12 months and try it. By the time I'd done 12 months, I was locked in and locked and loaded, ready to go and stayed on the farm. I had another brother. He came home after he finished uh, ag college. He went to the ag college and uh, did two years there in, in Emerald. Uh, he came home and together we we grew into the family partnership then we established him he's into cotton and farming down the emerald area and i i stayed home at the the family place and that's how it went so that was in the early 80s by 1984 well through the 60s we started using brahmin bulls over our hereford herd it was basically a hereford herd uh, we started using brahmin bulls into the herd at um from the 60s and 70s uh, by the time i got to 84 i'd taken the reins in the family business here and we decided there was more to it than just a one-way cross and that's where we decided the Simmental breed had a place for us in our herd and we brought them in and established a three-way rotational breeding program so we and we still use that today we use brahmin bulls we use Braford cattle we use um, Simmental and Charolais euro cattle and that's part of our whole our whole philosophy is to use the best of each breed. It's not about one breed has all the answers. So particularly in our country, it's a harsh climate. We need some Brahmin blood in our herd to handle the conditions. The Simmental and the uh, British breeds provide other things that we use as well. And that's where we are. And so was that three-way three rotation something that you actually started, that, like you've started back in the 80s and carried it right through? Or has it changed over the years? Well, it has changed. It has changed. It's been moderated over the years. We're now using a South Devon cross in there as well to, to improve our carcass quality, meat quality. But the breeds have also changed over the years. What was the original purpose of the Brahmin was a small, tough fighter, a survivor that was going to give us the survivability to handle droughts. We've improved our country. 
Our property development has taken us to a new level there. Our droughts are better managed than they used to be. We've got trucks, we've got transport, we can, we can move cattle around. That reason for using the Brahmins is not as critical as it was then, but it is it's still an important part of the process. And likewise, the Simmental breed, when they first came in in the early 80s, there were uh, the Dunmore type Simmental was a big draft type animal. We tried that, that gave us growth but it also reduced our fat cover and, and it made us unsuited to the market if the seasons got tough. So we've modified the type of Simmental cattle that we use. We now use a softer, earlier maturing type animal. We were originally selling into the Japox export market. We now sell into the domestic market. We live export some cattle. We, uh, we're still basically a Japox producer, but we, we do... We have been able to modify and change our customer base is the important part. And we've been able to modify and change our breeding pattern to, to suit that customer base. You've given me plenty to unpack, John. So I'm going to, we're going to jump into a couple of different things. I think yep. you touched on, I think the drought resilience piece. I really want to jump into that and ask you probably what you'll think are some really silly questions, but also just around that marketing options as well. But just firstly, so you mentioned that you guys are handling droughts better and yeah, like to be honest, it, that sounds incredible. Can you explain, so what is the process you guys have actually gone through in the farming business to be able to handle those droughts better? What are some of those decisions? Firstly, we've um, developed our scrub country to improve the production of it. The Briglow scrubs were uh, right through central Queensland. Much of that country, probably 70% of that has now been developed into buffalo grass, stylos, legume type pastures have given us a better quality pasture where our production, instead of producing trees, we're producing grass and we're recycling that using cattle to uh, put those nutrients back into the soil. But it, it's a self-fulfilling process. If you manage your country and look after it, it will grow and it'll produce what you, uh, what you need. We've aimed at, at developing our pastures. They're an important part of our long-term goals. I call it HGPs. Hybrid vigour is an important part of our, our process. We, that's why we use three different breeds. Genetic gain is another important part of our process. If we can have a 2% genetic improvement each year, over 10 years, that's a 20% improvement in the, in the animals we're producing. As technology has gone on, we've got gen genomics and we've got ways to select for those qualities that we're really looking for that process has become easier to, to make genetic gain. HGPs is our pasture and our, our production systems. We focus on developing and improving our, our soils and our land as part of that process. And the S is the supplements. We can use supplements. 50 years ago, we didn't have a supplement program that we could rely on. Now those supplements are available. The nutrition process is a lot better. Uh, things like um, MHU, molasses, and feeding molasses urea mix to help through the tougher times. All helps manage the property. Uh, at HCPs, the, the use of growth promoters in the herd. We use them in the, in the animals that are suited to that process. We use injections and, and vaccination are all, are all part of our process. So that, that's our HGPs. But the other thing I, I rely on is we work out the carrying capacity of our land as we see it at the time. So each year we're adjusting that to suit. And from that, we then go to 75% of that to give us that 25% buffer 
for the tough year. And there will be times when we have to reduce our herd numbers. But the, the aim is to, to work on 75% of our productive capacity so that we've got a buffer in there. That allows us to sell cattle when no one else can sell and to buy cattle when no one else can buy. And uh, if we've got an oversupply of pasture, we can renovate and revamp what we're producing. And so another very silly question from me, like where, where did that model and ideas come from? Was it trial and error? Trial and error, that's what happens when you ride around the paddock on a horse looking and thinking. Uh, that's what happens when you sit on a tractor farming. You, uh, you have a fair bit of spare time to just think and process what you're doing in life and where you're going. So a lot of that, a lot of that program has been developed by Jan, my wife and I. We've passed it on to our kids and they will further refine and develop that as, as we go forwards. Doug's handling genetic side of, uh, of the development. He's moving into genomics and uh, understanding how all that works, uh, using that more to select the type of animals that we require. Statistical data is only data if you don't make it in, into information. And if it's information, then you can change and direct your, your uh, energies into, into picking up the right genetic groupings to do what we need to do. Yeah, wow, that's uh, that's unreal. And the the two percent number, I like that's triggered a light bulb in my brain there. That two percent genetic improvement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like little incremental changes, as you're saying, over a ten year period, it's huge. It's yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We we had a workshop in Claremont some years ago, and we talked about one percenters that would would make a difference. If we can increase average daily gain in our cattle by one percent, that makes a hell of a difference over a twelve month period. If we can improve our pasture quality by 1% over 10 years, that's a 10% improvement. If we can improve our, uh, our marketing system by 1%, that's a 10% improvement over, over 10 years. Um, so working as a group in the, in the community, we came up with 50 ways we could improve our production by 1%. We call it our 50, 50 shades of black. It was, it was just a, a way that we looked at, looked at what we could do in our community to to improve our, our systems and uh, it's achievable if you focus on the one percenters yeah wow that's uh, that's extraordinary and then the other part which you kind of touched on there was around your marketing options and so that was that's a pretty sophisticated marketing piece between livex domestic market international etc who, who are you working with on this is this just you guys as a business or who are some of those people around you that you're relying on it's our business. It's our. It's the way we operate. We sell a lot of cattle through JBS. We sell all processes. We don't have any any uh, restrictions. But a lot of our a lot of our market is suited to to the JBS production system. But we also sell um, particularly our cull females. We grow them to a uh, a domestic market weight. We use um, Stanbroke, and they have a, a Flinders grid, which is ideally suited for the type of heifers we can produce up to 320 kilos under four teeth um, we can turn them off year after year and target that market for that that animal the higher brahman content animals um, some of them are more suited to the live export so we're happy to look at that as well and uh, the live export holds as a base in our domestic market uh, we need we need strong marketing options in all all facets and if we select our animal production to suit the market that we're targeting, there's a premium in there. A 5% premium for the right animal into the right market adds up quite significantly at the end of 12 months. Absolutely. That's, 
That's bloody cool. I reckon I could just keep throwing little business questions at you, John, for the next few yeah. hours. Right? <laughs> What's it like? Yeah. In terms of the so the the transition in the business. So you your brother was involved as well, and then you're now yep. handing it over to your your boys. So yeah, can, can you just give us a bit of an overview of actually uh, what the business is today and, and what you guys are running? So we started in the early '80s. We had uh, the family property. We were running twelve. 12 to 1500 head of cattle. We were both getting to the stage where we had families of our own, my brother and I, family, mum and dad were still on the property. We decided it was time we, we moved. So there were two options. We could split the family farm and each take half, or we could expand the family business and, and go from there. So I went to the Gulf of Carpentaria looking at properties up there. My brother Ian looked at Cotton Farms Emerald and put it in for a ballot when the Emerald Irrigation Scheme was just starting. His marble came out of the out of the box. So he went that way and I came home. So you reach a crossroads, you go left or you go right. But the important thing is you don't look back. You go, when you, when you hit that crossroads, just go hard in the right direction. We had a discussion some couple of years ago about uh, when you're driving a car, the windscreen is the big bit. The rear view mirror is small and it's significant. Look in there regularly to see where you've come from, but look out the windscreen and focus on where you're going. And you're, not, you're less likely to have a prang if you do it that way. I bloody love it. That's unreal. Right. So we got to um, early 80s. Ian went to the cotton farms. I stayed home. And we redesigned our herd and brought in the three-way rotation, rotational program. Uh, we had some gold mining on some of the country. We sold that. We bought another, another block. It was a farming block. At that stage, um, we were just in the war with Iraq. We bought the, bought the property with a wheat crop that we were going to go halves in. We sold the wheat crop to Iraq. Um, Bob Hawke promised we'd be paid for it. We never got paid for that crop. Looked disastrous. So you put that one behind and keep going. And at that point, we were on 18% interest. It was, uh, it was a pretty tough little period. So we had to find ways to improve our, our production systems to to manage pressure we were under. That was part of the driving force on the three-way rotation program that we started and kept refining and developing and, and chasing it forwards. That was mid-80s. We got the family split worked out and got my brother established in, in Emerald on the cotton farms. Then we had the option to, uh, well, we had a dry time. We needed to shift cattle. So it was adjustment or buy another property. We figured, did the figures and worked out we could we could buy the property at Springshaw. So we, we bought a block down there, 83,000 acres, undeveloped country. We went down there and redid the herd crossbreeding program down there and developed our herd and developed the land as we went there. That was in 97. Then we got involved with Peter Hughes and the Hughes family in the Stanbroke breakup. Uh, we were part of that process. One hell of a ride developing the thinking about how, how you'd manage a, a business like Stanbroke. We, we bought it. Our partner at that time decided that they, he wanted to sell down. We wanted to build, he wanted to sell. Um, so our group had to take the, take the medicine and, and sell down on Stanbroke. But that was how we got involved in the, in the purchase of Frankfield, one of the Stanbroke properties. Each opportunity that you see, you have to make a choice. Do I take it or do I let it go? If you take it, wear the consequences. If you let it go, also wear the consequences. Don't look back, just keep on, keep on going with the decision you've made. So since then, we've bought other properties, we've expanded, the boys are now into, the, into that role and uh, 
expanding and uh, and growing. And the business now is um, 45,000 head of cattle running 10 to 15,000 breeders. That's continually fluxing. It uh, depends where we are. And another part of our strategy now is to buy buy store cattle in to, to grow and fatten. That gives us another another option in a dry year to, to manage our herd growth. We can not buy and effectively reduce our numbers by 5,000 head a year within 12 months by simply changing our, our buying practices. And then in a, uh, in a good year like now, where you, you try and buy a few extras, you don't go from the left-hand side to the right-hand side. You stay near the white line and you just uh, move, move a little bit. Stay on your side of the road. But don't get out in the table, Grain. Just just stay on the stay on the bitumen, and you won't hit the potholes. Just a little bit of dancing either side, not too much, but just enough to keep moving. <laughs> Micro changes make a difference. Yep. I've got a question for you in terms of you, you mentioned interest rates and kind of the pressures of of growing the business. I think, well, firstly, it, it is unreal sitting here talking to you. But how have you personally coped with the different pressures? Like, what have been the outlets and ways that you've managed when you're you've got kind of your back against the wall to actually then keep moving forward one of the important things you do in life is is marry a really good woman and uh jan is really good at focusing on that that uh micromanagement of the financials and the budgeting keeping ahead of the game so that we know we've got cash flow coming and and we can manage our cash flow to stay ahead of of changes that are happening she's an integral part of our business it's uh it's it's a team team effort i do the visionary growth the ideas stuff she does the management and makes it happen and that's that's the way our family business has operated and that's been successful for us interest rates in themselves are not the problem it's how you respond to them and knowing what's coming next that um, we need to be and we have over the last two years planned that point point one percent rate was not sustainable it wasn't going to be there so you don't factor your purchases or your sales on 0.1 percent you factor it on what you think is a real value uh, and the same with the cattle prices cattle prices at the moment are are as high as they've ever been we can use that but we can't build our future based on that we need to be somewhat conservative in our thinking there and someone somewhat aggressive in our management of expenses so r- realistically you are you're um you're planning for the worst case scenario, hoping for the best, but landing somewhere in the middle. And and if you land in the middle and it's a good day and the sun's shining and the birds are twittering, you've got no problems. Don't don't get too concerned about what's what's coming next. Enjoy the moment, but but be prepared that it, there will be days when it's raining and it's not not quite as pretty as it is now. And for you, what would be one of your favourite memories of your time in agriculture and in the family business? Every day getting out of bed is favourite for me at the moment. But if I can if I can crawl out of bed in the morning, I'm having a good day. Just go for it. Yeah. The exciting bits of the chase that uh, when you plan the next growth phase, that's the exciting bits. That's the the standbreak the standbreak breakup was an exciting, challenging time in our life. It was just another one, but it but it was a an exciting and challenging time in our life. We're now as we've reduced our involvement in the in the family business we're now getting more involved in community business i get value out of um, planning how as a as a claremont community we can improve the options for the next generation what what we can do to establish better lifestyle better better vision for our kids that's that's all good stuff for me at the moment every day is a good day that's how life is ollie 
every day is a good day. Everybody has, has opportunities in their life. Sometimes it's very difficult to see that, but if you, if you decide that that's an opportunity you want to take, don't half take it, go hard and, and go, go hell for leather and, and make it work. The little mantra thing I had for myself this year, John, was all about um, literally just simple, back yourself and see what's possible. And uh, I think at times it's easy to dance around a little bit and second guess, but I don't know, it's kind of, as you say, pin the ears back and just see what can happen. And, and not every time is it easy. It's uh, There'll be days when you have a bad day and things turn pear-shaped. Be prepared to accept that that's your call as well. Don't blame somebody else when things go wrong. That was your call and laugh about it later. Oh, mate, I can tell you I'm in that, that exact position. Last week I was thinking, oh, my God, what have I got myself into? I'm up to my neck in things. And then I literally just sat down and wrote yeah. down everything I had to do over the next three months. And then this week, it's amazing. A week in a little small business is a long time because this week I'm like, okay, right up. We're on, we're on top of the mountain this week. <laughs> That's it, Ollie. <laughs> you go. Now, we better chat a little bit more about the simmies. And, and you guys have been involved with them for 40-odd years. So you, you touched on a little bit in terms of how, you, how you've used them. But how has that breed evolved over the 40 years? Um, with Yeah, I guess how, how the breed has evolved in Australia, but also within your business. Well, when we first went in, the reason I chose simmies as the breed for the third third cross was the statistics and figures that came with that breed were as good or better than any other breed. We looked at uh, limousines, we looked at um, Charolais, we looked at Simmental. It was basically to find a European breed that would add muscling to our herd, add growth rate, the meat quality, carcass quality, that, that wasn't the critical part of that stage. As time's gone on, that's changed. We've now... Uh, now looking for internal fat uh, measurements. We're looking at, uh, and we still want growth. We're still using the, the European breeds and particularly Simmental for their growth, their, their extraordinary growth capacity in our, in our climate and in our country. When we first bought those bulls, they were soft, they were tough, they, they, they struggled to, to make it. It was, a, it was a tough, tough outing for them to shift them from the softer country in New South Wales and Southern Queensland bring them up here and dump them in a paddock of uh, native grass and, uh, and expect them to survive. So we learned quickly that to get the best value out of those animals, we needed to care for them a bit more. Now that doesn't matter whether we're using uh, South Devon cattle, we're using uh, Charolais, we're using Simmental breeds. Um, any of those cattle are not ideally suited to our climate up here. And that's why we use the Brahmin mix in there. But the bull, if you can protect that bull, you produce 30 to 40 calves a year. That's where the genetic makeup of that next generation is important. In the early, early stages, we struggled to get enough fat cover on that, on that first cross animal. The big, growthy, growthy um, steers, but to, to get the fat cover was a, a difficulty. So that's when we got into, into forage cropping and particularly the use of oats. Uh, we use Lakina as part of our protein program. Those Eurocross cattle are ideally suited to that to that program, where we have a, an oats crop or a forage sorghum crop or a Lakina crop that we can we can give them that little bit extra to grow them quickly and get the uh, get the fat cover on them. Our philosophy is to, to breed as many as you can, as heavy as you can, and as quickly as you can. And if you get those three things all happening, then you're going pretty right. But uh, 
the carcass quality, the meat quality, that's all important, but it's not as important as, as your growth. But your, if you, your growth is a bit that weight will out, outweigh other factors most of the time. The other other reason we chose Simmental was the temperament factor we felt was 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 good. We had uh, had good good options there. The crossbred females were good milkers. Um, it was uh, they were a breed that seemed to suit what we were trying to achieve. And in terms of where the breed's going, and and I guess maybe the the cattle industry more broadly, we're seeing. There's all kinds of different pressures and noise coming from different areas, but where, what role does the Simmental breed have kind of going forward in your business? It continues to provide the same role, but we are looking more for intramuscular fat because we can now measure it. We can use it as a selection criteria. So we're looking for, for bulls that have, um, that have been through a sale preparation process. We're looking for four and a half to 5% IMF. Rib fat, rump fat, as long as they're similar, I'm not well, not too concerned about that, but I am concerned about improving our intramuscular fat levels. But that's also why we're using the South Devon and the British breeds is to improve intramuscular fat. They, they have the capacity to lay that marbling down better than the European breeds and better than the Brahmin breeds. But if we select for as much as we can in each breed, but don't forget why we, why we use them in the first place. The Brahmin breed, do we use them because of their survivability and capacity to, to throw those attributes to the other breeds of cattle we use? The Simmental, the number one attribute we're looking for there is increased muscling and increased growth. We don't sacrifice mm -hmm. that for the sake of intramuscular fat. We don't want a, a wiener production bull. We want a, a Jap ox production bull. Um, and so we're selecting for that. But what the difference between now and 40 years ago is we've got more figures, we've got more accuracy in those figures, and we've got a greater capacity to select the right type of animals. The other factor that we're looking at closely now is the morphology of, of um, semen morphology in, the, in those bulls. We want an early maturing bull that can flow on through to our, our female replacement heifers. Um, so we're looking for early maturity, early fertility, uh, puberty at a younger age and so we're we're applying pressure on our our bull selection we do, we also breed internally we breed our own bulls and we're applying pressure to get that early puberty type animal coming through the herd perfect in i love it how it's well yeah you take out one piece and you're actually not going to achieve the goals that you guys are doing and it's yeah simis have their role to play the brahmins have their role yep, to play the yep. south devons and the other breeds as well all yeah come together and it's an integral part you, you touched on just how much the data and the actual i guess ability to decipher information from that data to then help make business decisions where do you reckon in the next 50 years like the simi breed itself is going or what are the traits that are setting it up for success look at the pig industry we can look at the dairy industry we can look at the chook industry they've all used technological change to improve their production factors. The big difference between our industry and those industries is that we're relying on a rangelands grass space. So we've still got to have things like capacity to walk distances. That's still got to be important. We mm -hmm. don't want extreme length. We, we want long animals, but we can't handle extreme length because it get a weakness in the back structure. Um, just like pigs, like they, uh, they can breed them two kilometers long, but they, but they won't survive. So we've got to have survivability as a base in our breeding program. Our bull genetic breeders 
need to have a strong connection with the commercial world so that they don't lose track of, of what is important. Um, and we've seen that in the past, um, breeds that have got too small because they're chasing a, a particular attribute. Rafford cattle, one of the breeds we use, they, they lost the plot when they started to worry about getting the colour right first and then the other things became, became important. That's not, not what we need to do. We need to focus on the commercial reality of the issues that are important and drive our genetic changes in that, in that range. Um, Brahmin, Brahmin breed at the moment concerned me. They're selecting for, for high growth, high weight gain type animals. The advantage of the small calf that what used to be there is no longer there. That they, They're breeding away from a small, a small calf, short gestation, because they're chasing high growth, they are losing some of the fertility benefits of the, uh, the smaller, smaller type Brahmin animal that we were using. So that all breeders have to be, no matter what breed, have to be aware of what the commercial realities are and focus on those. And the Simmental breeders that we see in this in our area here now, we've got uh, we've got a bull sale Simmental sale in Emerald today. They've been bred in the in the local area. They've they've deliberately come up to, into central Queensland to breed those bulls under our conditions. They're using EBVs. They're using data measurement. It makes our selection process easier because we can buy bulls that we can be reasonably confident they will handle our conditions and survive up here. Yeah, and I think that's probably like a, a key part of this podcast series as part of the Simi Association has been. It's like. It is covering all bases, absolutely. Stud breeders, uh, a critical part to it. But also when your name came up, it was really important to actually talk to the commercial realities and, and how it's actually going to produce animals at scale with what, I, I guess, farmers, but actually also the end markets are, are looking for. We select for high growth animals, but we can't select for high growth animals if they get to the 800 kilos and they've got two mil of fat cover. They, uh, some of the European breeds early on were, were going that way. And some of the uh, scimitar breeders early on were pushing that way. They were pushing for that enormous, gigantic animal. You, your females are harder to keep, keep alive and keep fertile because their sustainability demands were too high. So we're looking for a moderate, large frame cow. Um, our cull, cull females are going through 320 kilos dressed. That's, that's fine. We don't need 450 mm -hmm. kilo dressed cows. We want them 320 kilos dressed, but we want them to have a calf every year and we want them to produce steers that will lay down the fat requirements for the market at the time. And our fat requirements for the market at the time are 7 to 22 mils. That's where we want to aim for our P8 fat, 7 to 22 mils. Aim for that. There'll be some slip out either end, but that's, that's the target we need to aim for. Our job, we don't aim for a fat feeler. We aim for a fat 300 kilo fat carcass. So... Uh, that's not to say that there isn't a demand for that other type animal, but that will be in another in another part of the country somewhere else. Well, I just I've found our chat fascinating, John. I kind of love understanding a little bit more about just your business and I'll say your business brain because the the strategy behind what you do um, is incredible, and I've I've really enjoyed this chat, and I reckon the listeners of the podcast are going to love it too. Thanks, Ollie. I hope it uh, provides something for someone, but it's. it's it's just what we do and how we do it and uh, it works for us so if anyone else wants to wants to use it that's that's fine it's, it's not it's not secret information it's just uh, the way i see the world well i hope you enjoyed that as much as i did i just love sitting down 
on John's veranda. Well, practically anyway, over Zoom. But we'd love to hear your thoughts of the series so far. Get in touch with Felicity at the Simmental Breeders Association because we would absolutely love any feedback on our guests and the stories that we're sharing. Next week, we're sitting down with Liz and Beck Skeen, long-time breeders and a mother-daughter duo who have quite a story of love that comes in behind the scenes. We'll see you next week. This podcast is sponsored by Simmental Australia. Unlock the potential in your herd and take it to the next level in performance. It's time to take your Simmental advantage.